The first main statement of Jesus' first main sermon sounds actually somewhat mild, but when you get into the revelation of what it means, it is powerful and transformational, and it will, in a sense, send you into the orbit of your God-given destiny as a child of God. You need this revelation, and I guarantee you it will absolutely impact your life in the name of the Lord. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. The statement that launched the New Covenant Age unveils a mystery of the kingdom of God that is just amazing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's three parts to this revelation. The revelation of blessedness, the revelation of what it is to be poor in spirit, and the revelation of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to break it down into those three parts. First, what does the word blessed mean? Actually, it's like a diamond with many facets. It has many different meanings. To be blessed means to be supremely happy. To be blessed also means to be enriched with benefits, to be spiritually prosperous, to be highly favored of God, and then it also means to be a person who attains qualities of character that God considers to be the highest good or the greatest expressions of the divine nature attainable by a human being. So it covers a wide range of meanings. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if the word blessed means happy, you could substitute the word happy for the word blessed and say, happy are the poor in spirit. Well, that doesn't really make logical sense because you wouldn't be happy if you were poor naturally. You wouldn't go down the road kicking your heels if you were bankrupt and they came and took your car and put a lock on the front door of your home and foreclosed it. That certainly wouldn't create extreme joy in you. Well, if you wouldn't be happy about being poor naturally, why would you be happy about being poor spiritually? It's not that you're happy about that particular admission of guilt, and really that's what it is. It's an admission that you are poverty-stricken spiritually, that you are bankrupt in Adam, that you are helpless and hopeless without God. That's what poverty of spirit is. It is a recognition of your lack, your emptiness, and the futility of any attempts on your part to be righteous by your own works. But see, that's not what you're happy about. What you should be overjoyed about is the ultimate outcome of, dis, uh, of having that attitude toward God, 
of presenting your heart to God with that kind of approach. And then you inherit all the riches that are available in Christ. In fact, Paul called them unsearchable riches in Christ. I believe it will help us to understand the meaning of that first beatitude. It was the first main statement in Jesus' first main sermon. And it will help us to see how it's translated in other versions of the Bible. For instance, in the New English Bible, it says, How blessed are those who know their need of God. That makes it clear. And then today's English version says, Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. See, the majority of people in this world feel self-sufficient, self-confident. They don't need God. They don't need any input into their life to complete them or maybe not the majority, but quite a few people in this world have that mindset and they cut themselves off from the abundance of what heaven can provide. But then the opposite is also true when you come to God with a repentant attitude and you admit that in Adam, I'm dead mentally, dead emotionally, dead spiritually. I've inherited a status of separation from God. I cannot bridge that gap by my own efforts. Then God recognizes that you have faith in his plan and not your own ability. And that's when he arrives on the scene in your life. No wonder how blessed are those who know their need of God, like the New English Bible states it. Well, I believe there's two scriptures that really show the great contrast of, of the attitude jump that you make when you enter into this promise agreement with God. You've got to be able to say John 15 verse 5, without him I can do nothing. You might want to even expand it to without him I can be nothing, without him I can accomplish nothing. That's step number one. But then that opens the portal. That opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. And if you step through that portal by faith, receiving Jesus as the king of your heart, and he's enthroned within you, then you earn the right, in a sense, or you're gifted with the right of being able to say, according to Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You go from without him I can do nothing to with him I can do anything. Anything he leads me to do, anything he empowers me to do. So you go from zero to a hundred in one act of commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's absolutely incredible. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That's the grace of God. And that's the statement that launched the new covenant era. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first of eight Beatitudes. I think it's important, too, to go back to the original Greek. The word translated poor is the main word we need to examine because it's pronounced tokos, and it means trembling. That's the essence of the meaning of that word that is translated poor. Well, if you see someone trembling, that's a posture of helplessness and hopelessness. 
But there's a scripture that kind of relates to it in a spiritual sense, and that's Psalm 2, verse 11. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So it carries it a step further. The kind of trembling, I think, that touches the heart of God is trembling with an awestruck attitude of heart at the greatness of God and the smallness of man, and that he would even invite you into fellowship with him. That's what David talked about when he said, the words that I'm going to share with you right now, out of Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17. He said, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Now here's the key part. David said, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. Now wait a second. David was probably one of the richest men in the world in his day. It would compare to the the bank account of a billionaire today, the kind of spoils of war he had gathered and the personal fortune he had acquired. He used much of his own personal money to uh, get all the materials together in order to build the temple. He was extremely wealthy, and yet he wasn't talking about natural wealth. He said, I am poor and needy. Most royal people would think it to be a negative self-image to admit, I'm a needy person, but not David, because David was a lover of God and a man after God's own heart. And I don't believe he ever got proud or haughty about the position of authority God had placed him in. He kept this poverty of spirit. And as a result, God blessed him immensely. Let me take you to another scripture, and that's Isaiah 41, verses 17 and 18. I love this passage of scripture and what it communicates. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now listen to the promise. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land, now picture in your mind an arid wilderness, a cracked riverbed, everything is dead and dry. But God said, I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. And the key element is poverty of spirit. Because it says when the poor and needy seek water, not when the proud and self-sufficient seek water, not when the arrogant and self-confident seek water, but when the poor and needy seek water. And there is none. And there are times when there's a spiritual dearth in the world. And our tongues, in a spiritual sense, fail for thirst. We despair of life. Then we turn to him and we admit our need. And he opens up the windows of heaven over us. Isn't that just amazing? Praise God. See, Jesus said, he who believes on me out of his innermost being, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. That's a very barren place, the human heart. That's a a place of a 
kind of a dry, cracked riverbed where nothing can grow and no life exists prior to salvation. But once Jesus comes in, the gushing river flows out and brings forth fruit in your life. That's so amazing. Now, the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation really exemplifies the opposite of what I'm talking about, the opposite of what I'm encouraging you to cultivate within yourself, this poverty of spirit. The seventh church that received a message from the resurrected Christ heard him say these words, because you say, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He said, I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He said, I counsel you to buy from me. Well, how do you buy something from God? Well, there's a purchase price in a sense. David said, I will not sacrifice unto the Lord that which does cost me nothing. And so if your relationship with God is not costing you anything, maybe you haven't made this kind of transaction yet. You buy things from God in a sense, in a spiritual sense, a symbolic sense, with sacrifice, with the presentation of your body as a living sacrifice on God's altar. You also, quote unquote, purchase things from God by exhibiting faith, by believing his promises, by having confidence in his person, who he is, what his character is like. Well, what did he mean when he said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Gold is a symbol of the divine nature. Job said, when God has tried me, I will come forth as gold. He was talking about character transformation. When he said, I will come forth as gold, he was saying, I'm going to be a more valuable person. I'm going to be more valuable to God in my relationship with him. I'm going to be more valuable to people in my relationship with them because I'm going through this hellish attack on my life now, but it's going to birth in me things of heavenly value. Things like love and forgiveness and mercy and humility and meekness and kindness and compassion and many other godlike traits imaged in him, because that's God's process to image himself in us. And when that happens, we come forth as gold refined in the fire. Gold has to be refined so the dross can come to the surface. And usually the real you, the real me, doesn't come to the surface until we're in the fire. The fire of tribulation, the fire of temptation, the fire of trials, the fire of persecutions. And then the dross comes out, God scoops it up, or we scoop it up, we get rid of it, we buy gold refined in the fire. We become more like Jesus. You need that. You don't need to be overly confident about where you're at. You need to admit where you need to be. Because if you say, I'm rich, that could be naturally interpreted or spiritually interpreted. I've got all I need. I don't have to pray anymore. I don't have to believe God for anymore. 
You may be cutting yourself off from the abundance that is available for you. Well, what about these white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness do not appear? How do you buy white garments from God? Well, a white garment, of course, represents righteousness. And the saints in heaven are depicted as wearing robes of righteousness. I like to look at it this way, symbolically, that any robe or piece of clothing has vertical threads and horizontal threads. You have the horizontal threads, you have the vertical threads woven together, and it makes a piece of material. And a robe of righteousness is necessarily a marriage of effort on God's part and on your part. If all you had was self-attained righteousness, it would be like trying to make a robe out of horizontal threads. It would fall to the ground immediately, and the shame of your nakedness would definitely appear. If all you had was confidence in imparted righteousness from God, but your life wasn't coming into alignment with that, then all you would have is vertical threads. And that wouldn't cover your nakedness very well if there was any movement on your part especially. But when you weave your attempt at righteousness with God's gift and impartation of righteousness, then you have a robe of righteousness It was well worth any cost that it demanded of you. And I believe that's what he's talking about here. Then he said, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, you need the discernment of the Holy Spirit. You need the oil of the anointing, opening up your understanding. The spirit of truth, showing you what life is all about showing you yourself, showing you the nature of God, showing you not only what you have, but what you can have if you exhibit poverty of spirit. I have two more scriptures I want to cover, and then I'm going to close. This is my favorite scripture to really encapsulate everything I've said about being a person who has poverty of spirit or a person who is poor in spirit, as Matthew 5, 3 says. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Is that talking about stocks and bonds and bank accounts and stashes of gold and precious stones. No, absolutely not. It's talking about spiritual riches. It's talking about how Jesus was rich in the splendor of heaven. He was rich in fellowship with the Father. He was rich in the adoration of the angels. He was rich in the undisturbed peace of the celestial world and much, much more. But he divested himself of those riches to come down and assume the poverty-stricken form of Adam flesh, to come under a barrage of temptations, to be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. See, for your sakes, he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Well, he was made more poverty-stricken than any other time when he went to the cross. And that's when he became sin for the human race. The sum total of all the sin of all humanity 
All those who were of the past, all those who would be of the future, it all converged on that hill called Golgotha. He absorbed it like a sponge. All that sin came into him and contaminated his soul. His soul was made an offering for sin. Otherwise, he couldn't have died because he was sinless and death is the result of sin. And if you connect with him by faith in his absolute poverty on the cross, when even the Father forsook him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then, at that connecting point between your helpless life and the helpful Savior who wanted to rescue you, passing to you will be the righteousness of God. Because God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. One more scripture, and I love it so much. It's in Hannah's spontaneous prophetic psalm, which she apparently wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after Samuel was prophesied. She didn't know that she would name that boy Samuel yet, but Eli the high priest told her that God was going to grant her petition to have a son. And so she was rejoicing in the God who responded to her. And this is one of the lines in that beautiful prophetic psalm in 1 Samuel chapter 2, this is verse 8. The King James Version says, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. What's that talking about? Is it talking about just those who are naturally poor or spiritually poor. I tend to believe it covers both, but primarily it's talking about those who have poverty of spirit. He raises up the poor out of the dust. What does the dust represent? Carnality and mortality are being represented by this statement. And the dust represents our mortality because Dust you are, unto dust you shall return. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and then it was declared that he would return to it. So it's our mortality. It's the curse of death over these physical bodies. But God raises up the poor out of the dust. Mortality has no more authority over you because you've received the gift of eternal life if Jesus is Lord of your life. And then he raises up the beggar from the dunghill. What is a dunghill? For you country people, you're well familiar with this phrase. It's a manure pile, right? What would that represent? The carnal side of our nature, the lower, filthy, corrupted side of our nature. That all human beings are contaminated by, dirtied by, until the precious blood of Jesus washes us clean. And then it wrenches us free from the grits of the lower nature. Oh, we still battle it, but we're in a superior position because we've been born again and seated with Christ in heavenly places and our enemy has been made our footstool. And one of our enemies is the lower nature. And then it says to lift the beggar from the dunghill. Beggar, why beggar? Because you and I were not afraid to plead with God to beg mercy of the Father. And he bestowed it in our lives. And he set us among princes, the royal seed of God, in a heavenly kingdom. We're a part of that kingdom. Remember, that was Jesus' promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is comprised of everything God is. Love, joy, peace, wisdom, power, authority. Everything that God is and everything that he has. Wow. So you go from nothing to everything. You have nothing in Adam. You have everything in Christ. Because you become part of a kingdom where you're seated with princes. And more than that, Hannah said, you inherit the throne of glory. You're actually seated with the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his place of supreme authority. There is no place of greater victory. There is no place of greater triumph. There is no place of greater comfort and rest and security than being enthroned with the Lord Jesus. And all of that hinges on poverty of spirit being resident within your heart. Isn't that a fantastic revelation? Well, you can dig into much more revelation about who we are in Christ by getting my book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. Find out who God says you are and start this wonderful journey into boldly following God's directives for your life. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.